Should I just give the benediction and you all can leave now, right? I think that's pretty much says it all. Um, is that heavy or what? That's from the movie uh, Malice, by the way. Um, a God complex. God complex. What is the, uh, what would be a good definition? Is there a definition? I found one for us. Um, just follow along. A God complex is a colloquial term used to portray a perceived character flaw as if it were a psychological complex. The person who is said to have a God complex does not believe he is God, but is said to act so arrogantly that he might as well believe he is a God or appointed to act by a God. Some people also call it a messianic complex or a messiah complex. Some believe, watch this, some believe that God complexes are particularly common in arrogant, highly educated, worldly, or powerful people. So who could that be? Anybody you know? Don't raise your hand. Could it be, I just made a list of some of the people it could be that we might have a God. I had some, I had some friends help me with this too, some people who in, in different businesses and so forth. Um, who would be vulnerable to getting a God complex? Somebody told me commodity traders would have that com- might have that complex. Um, someone else told me a hedge fund manager. Um, doctors, obviously. Uh, politicians, attorneys, athletes. Well, this takes steroids. No, we don't want to talk about steroids. Um, <laughs> athletes, artists, some. Priests, ministers. Educators, judges, police, the foreman at the local factory, moms, dads, even kids sometimes. Here's the point. Bottom line is all of us, given the right set of circumstances, the right place, the right stuff going on, could be vulnerable to having this this arrogant God complex if you will. And I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about that from the Bible, from, from a particular guy that we're going to look at. He's a king. He's literally a king in the Old Testament. And uh, his name is King Saul. And, and just kind of to be clear here, and I always want to try to be as clear as I can, um, there's, there are two guys in the, in the Bible. And just, just, just to kind of a little Bible 101 here, and if you don't know the difference, please don't feel ashamed or anything else because these things can easily be confused. There are two Sauls in the Bible. Right? Now, there's one I talked about recently. There was a Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament, and he was the guy that would literally killed and persecuted believers of Jesus, Christians, and, and, and then was on a road to a little place called Damascus, had this, this vision of sunlight just so bright he couldn't, he blinded him, knocked him off his horse, and he had the original, what I call the original come to Jesus meeting, because uh, he, he literally came to Christ uh, after persecuting those who were followers of Christ. His name was Saul of Tarsus, later on became a great preacher, great writer of much of the New Testament. We, of course, now know him as Paul the Apostle. So that was one Saul. He's in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's the other Saul, King Saul. That's who we're going to talk about today. Now, King Saul, a little quick interjection of history, just in case just you need it refreshed or in case you didn't know. Israel, as, as we know it, and in terms of the, the whole United Kingdom, quote-unquote, of Israel, had three kings. 
There was King Saul, there was King David, and there was King Solomon in that order. Now, after King Solomon, the kingdom split, and you had northern Israel, and you had southern Israel. Northern Israel was called Israel, southern Israel was called Judah. And in, among those, you had all kinds of kings. Most of them were bad kings. But when Israel was one country in the Old Testament, from, uh, from the north to the south as we know Israel today, there, was, there were three kings. This is the first one, King Saul. Okay, now, he was a good king in the beginning. He was a man, the Bible tells us, he was a man that, that the Spirit of God came upon. The Bible tells us he prayed for the people. The Bible tells us he was, uh, he was you know, a, a good guy, you know? Good-looking guy. He was he was taller than anybody else for whatever that's worth, and so forth. And uh, but he was a good guy. But there was another guy in the Old Testament. Heard me refer to him often. His name was Samuel. Samuel was not a king. Samuel was a priest and a prophet, kind of like an Old Testament preacher. Only in those days they had a lot more power because in those days you've heard me talk about this before. Israel was what we call a theocracy. And in a theocracy, um, you, have, you have literally the, the leaders of what we would call the church would be also the leaders of the country. I believe in theocracies. I think we should go back to that, but we probably won't. Okay, I just want you to know that. Um, we don't have that. We have much, you know, with democracy, we have a republic, actually, a, 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 a democratic republic. But um, so anyway, but in those days, the priest or prophet... Samuel had really more power. He's the one that anointed the king. So he anoints Samuel, excuse me, Samuel anoints King Saul to be king. Okay? And for a while, things are good. And King Saul is doing the things he should do, and he's being a, being a good king. But, and he reigns over Israel for about 40 years, but less than five years into his reign, he runs into some trouble. Okay? And that's where, I'm gonna, that's where we're going to begin, because less than five years into his reign, so to speak, um, the Philistines, they're, they're, the Philistines, and you need to understand, maybe you've heard about you know, David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines were just sort of the constant enemy of Israel. And you know, just for the record, in case you want to kind of bring things and correlate it to today, the Philistines were part of the Arab nation. So... Uh, the Arab-Israeli thing, it goes way back, way back. It's even going on here. The Philistines are about to attack King Saul. And he's scrambling, he's worried, he's concerned, he's thinking, I've got to do something. Now, let me just show you what's happening with this, because this is where it takes place, all right? So, understanding all that, we're going to see this, 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 this God complex, this arrogance begin to develop right here in the guy that was a good guy in the beginning. We go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5. The Philistines, verse 5, mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots. Watch this. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as many warriors as the grains of sand along the seashore. Can you believe that? It's a lot of people. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. They're really not that far apart if you were there today. But in those days, keep in mind, you know, you're walking mostly or horses. When the men of Israel saw the vast number of enemy troops, they lost their nerve. This is, this is King Saul's army. They lost their nerve entirely. They tried to hide in caves, holes, rocks, tombs, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan, going the opposite direction, and encamped in the land of Gad and Gilead. So things are falling apart for the king. You know that old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, and so forth and so on? He didn't have too much of that. Okay, So he's scrambling. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Now, they're supposed to have a quote-unquote 
we will call it a dedication type of service of the army about this time. And Samuel, the prophet, had told King Saul, wait on me, wait till I get there. Because only, the, only at that, at, in, in this economy, only the, the prophet and the priest can, do, can conduct the, the sacrifices and the so forth that were a part of what we know as the Old Testament. So, keep reading here. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, it's the king, stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Verse 8. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded... Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. This is really, really a no-no. And and Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and to welcome him. You you, you know, I've tried, as I mentioned this in the early service, I've tried really ever since we started, I knew I was going to do this, to think of some sort of modern-day parallel to what, what would this be like? Why, how, how, what's so bad about Samuel, you know, performing the, the act of a priest? What's so bad about that? Would that be, could, would a correlation be Rich was late for church and, and therefore I went ahead and gave the sermon for him? Would that be a parallel? No, because for one, it might be better, <laughs> which would be a bad thing. <laughs> for two, it's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It may, you know, maybe you didn't prepare, maybe you didn't have the studies I had or whatever, but, but nothing, there's nothing wrong, in, in, you know, inherently wrong with that. All right? Whereas this was wrong. It was against the Levitical law. It was against the law of Moses. It was, it was you know, the, only the priest could do this. And, uh, and, and so there, there are many ways. Um, Somebody gave me. Somebody talked to me after the first service. And said, "You know, it's kind of like if you remember the movie uh, Hunt for Red October. There were only two keys to the to the missiles. And if you remember the movie Sean Connery, who was a star of the movie, shot the other guy who had the other key, and he and he put it, both keys on his uh, on his neck. And uh, one of the other guys that was there said, "That's the purpose of having two people doing it." You know, the point was it was totally inappropriate for him to do that. So that's the whole protective system. In the Old Testament, only the priest and the prophet was to make the sacrifices. And, and we, you know, the truth is there are no parallels to today because there, are, there is no holy of holies. There is no place that only I can go because I'm ordained and you're not. Or, or we don't have any of that because Jesus tore all that down. And we're all equal. We're all one. There is no difference between clergy and laity. That was one of the big deals of the Reformation. We're all the same. I just have happened to dedicate my life and education and, and so forth and so forth to do what I do. But that doesn't make me any different. So that you can't make the parallel hill, well, it was okay for, for, for King Saul to do this. No, it wasn't. Not in this particular economy, it wasn't. And you go back to Leviticus chapter 8, talks about the priest doing this and so forth. So it was totally inappropriate, totally wrong for King Saul to do this. He knew it. He knew it all along. It was the result of his quote-unquote God complex coming out. And Samuel knew it, of course, and Samuel's going to call him on it. Because in verse 11, Samuel said, What is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering before me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash, ready for battle. And so I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us. I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt obliged to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. That's just a... Uh, just, just a twist. It's just like I did it. I did it because I can. I'm the king. That's really what he should have said because that was the truth. Because look what happens next. How foolish! Samuel exclaimed. 
How foolish. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord your God. Had you obeyed, watch this, had you obeyed, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your dynasty must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You might know who that is? David. King David. It wouldn't be for another, gosh, almost 20 years, 10, 15 years before David would be king. But already, God is laying the groundwork for that. And uh, he's already, the Lord has already chosen him to be king over his people, for you have not obeyed the Lord's command. This was the beginning. You need to understand this. This was the beginning of the downfall of King Saul. This was just the beginning. He would do two or three more things like that. And I'm not going to take you through all the scriptures to show you that. He, he, he would do some other stuff like this. Another, exa- another clear example just like that that he did. He did the same thing later on as well. It was the beginning of his downfall as king and, and of God withdrawing his blessing from King Saul. Now, here's what I want you to see. Um, later on, he does something very similar to this. Later on in the book, it's a few years later in terms of uh, the chronology. And Samuel utters some words to him that are later on written by David in the Psalms. Obviously, David, David heard those words from Samuel, because Samuel was also a prophet when, when David was the king. So I'm going to take you to that passage. It's in Psalm 40. And uh, just, just to show you this, just follow along with me. Psalm 40, verse 4. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. Now he talk, talk, starts talking to God here. Oh, Lord, my God, you have done many miracles for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. You, still talking to God, and these are the words that he utters to to King Saul earlier, that Samuel utters to King Saul. He's talking to God. He says, you, God, take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come, and this has been written about me in your scroll. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your law is written on my heart. Saul, the king, King Saul missed the point. He missed the whole point. He was more worried about the activity of worship than he was the attitude of worship. He was more worried, I got to go through this religious rigmarole, which had been certainly ordained by God, but only as a representation of a heart that first came to God. He missed the point. He missed the point. I got to get into the regiment. I got to get into the ritual. I'm not going to worry too much about the attitude. I got to do this act as opposed to the attitude. Does that happen today? I got to go to church. Why? Well, I just have to. Why? Well, because it's the, it, 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 I just have to. Well, why? Well, because if I don't go to church, I'll go to hell. Eh, wrong answer. Okay? Sorry. <laughs> That's not true. You know, it's just not, I mean, don't misunderstand. You know this, and I say this, I love you to come to church, okay? But if you're coming because it's going to keep you from going to hell, then don't be confused. That's not going to keep you from going to hell. Okay? Jesus is going to do that. So, and, that, and that's the issue here. Here, King Saul is so confused on this issue. He wants to go through the motions. He wants to go through. He totally misses his point. And it cost him, it cost him everything. 
I don't know if you know this about King Saul. Later on, he will take his own life. I mean, it cost him everything. Just a sad, sad life. Why? He missed the point that it was about the heart. And that's what Samuel told him. And he knew that. He'd been told that from the very beginning. So what does that mean for you and me? All right, let me, let me, let me make some applications here before I go further. I call this cures for a God complex kind of people or how to keep from getting a God complex. Who can, be, who can have a God complex? You and me. Doesn't matter who you do or what you do. Doesn't matter if your particular profession comes with a lot of dollar signs or not. You say, well, it's usually got to be a dollar sign kind of person. Not necessarily. We talked about priests and ministers can have that. Educators can have that. You know, we're all, we're all in professions, priests, ministers, educators. None of us are ever going to be rich doing what we do, but you can still gain a lot of prestige and you can gain a lot of other things that can give you, you know, many opportunities to be a God complex. So don't confuse this God complex thing with people who have high dollars. If you have high dollars, yeah, that's one temptation you're going to have to think about. So it's it just, it, it's a whole, it's, you know, it, it could be anybody. It could be the guy that owns the corner store. We've all seen that kind of thing. So don't get confused with this and try to make it something that it's not. Two very simple things. Again, obviously, I don't give formulas, but here are two just real simple bullet points for cures for, for God complex kind of people, how to keep from getting a God complex. The first one is very simple. Remember, you're just like everybody else. Please don't miss that point. You're, remember, you're just like everybody else. Now, you may be strong in this area, but you also have weaknesses in another area. We're all cut out of the same cloth. Some of us have more intelligence than others. Some of us have more talent than others. Some of us have more, you know, ability to do this or hit a ball farther or, or, or whatever it happens to be than, than, than others. But, but, but just remember, you're just like everybody else. Stronger in some areas, weak in others. Let me give you a quote from a great artist. I'm not going to say his name because in the, he's a Frenchman. And, you know, the French, they don't know how to... Anyway, uh, I, <laughs> they have some of the most... The, the French remind me of, of Atlanta. Have you ever been to Atlanta? They have, they, have a, they have a street in Atlanta, and it's called, I would pronounce it, who discovered Florida? Anybody know? Ponce de Leon, right? Ponce de Leon. Is that how you say it? Ponce de Leon? I'll ask the smart kids down here. Ponce de Leon, right? That's how you say it, the French guy, okay? In, in Atlanta, you know what you call it? Ponce de Leon. Ponce de Leon. And they'll say, yeah, you're down there in Ponce de Leon. That's how you, you know, you say, when I, was, when I was there, when I used to live there, I was, where's Ponce de Leon? They say, I don't know where that is. Oh, Ponce de Leon. That's over there, Ponce de Leon. <laughs> The French are like that. They have their own way to pronounce different words. And it's the same thing here. And so this is, you're going to recognize the artist. He's the artist that did the, uh, that did the, uh, the thinker, you know? Yeah. You know? You might want to try that name for me. Say that. Rodin. Rodin. It's, it's, I'll show you. You'll see. How I pronounced it the way that four people told me how to pronounce it. I did that in the early service. Before I got from here to there, five more people came up to me and told me how to pronounce it. Each one differently. Each one more confident than the first one. So anyway, I'm not going to say it, but you know who the artist is, but I don't want you to, I don't want to get hung up on the artist, and I want you to see what he said, because this, this is, this is great right here. So, so watch what he says. Do you know what is the greatest enemy of the artist? Talent, the gift he's born with, facility, dexterity. In a word, chic is what spoils us and ruins us. We think we've arrived at the summit of our art no sooner than we produce something and we look no further. And not only that, we then underrate those who don't have the same facility. 
All I can say to that is amen, and it is not just true for artists. It's true for business people, it's true for ministers, it's true for a lot of others. Our biggest, our biggest enemy is our talent. Because many times it will cause us to judge others. Remember, you're just like everybody else. Different, but you're just like everybody else. Second thing is just almost like the first one. Be self-aware. Be self-aware. Um, you know, be about self-examination. I was, um, Charlie and I were going somewhere recently, and it was, uh, you know, one of those places where you had to wear a coat and tie, and I was waiting on her, which doesn't always happen, but I was waiting on her downstairs, so I stood in front of the mirror there by our closet door and just wanted to make sure I was put together, you know, nicely and looked look sharp and cool and everything. And I... Uh, <laughs> I didn't say I did. I said I wanted to make sure of that, okay? So I just stood there for a moment. I was, you know, making sure, you know, my pants weren't too long like these are. And then I wanted to make sure that, you know, I had this put together and hide and everything I needed to hide. And I sat there and stood there in front of the mirror, I, I, I promise, for at least five minutes. And I just kept looking. I just kept getting more depressed. And I'm fully clothed. So, I mean, that, that's not the issue, you know. I'm just, I'm just like, oh, gosh, this is. And, 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 then, and then I was telling the story earlier, and somebody after the 930 service came and told me, he says, let me tell you this one. This is better. Talking about the same thing, took, took his wife to, to uh, some dermatologist thing, and they put a mirror. You know those, those mirrors that we all have, at least we have, you're over 40, those mirrors that, that, that magnify and everything? That's about three or four times. Well, he, his wife had to stand in front of this mirror just for her face that magnified 20 times. 20 times. And he said, you know, she almost left the place in tears. And, 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 and it's just such a, such a humbling experience. These people here cannot relate to this at all. You're too young, so don't even try, okay? But uh, it's just such a humbling experience. Um, now, we need to do that not externally, but internally. We need to really be able to examine who we are and what we're doing and what our activity is and what our heart what our heart is telling that's what we need to do and really the best place to do that the only place to do that is with God in the Bible the Bible gives us the Bible's like a mirror in telling us how we are to live and, and attitudes and we need to look for those those, in, those self-examining warning signs those, those flashes of arrogance the unwillingness to listen to others the isolation sometimes that can set in. The, the, the attitude, I'm always right. And you're wrong. The attitude that, that, that you just automatically reject criticism. We need to get away from that. And there's only one way we can do it. I promise you, I try to dot everything. There's only one way we can do it. I believe. And that is with God. And just, just get before God. And be able to just really think and ask. And really explore some things. Let me show you another quote from a great wine, a great winemaker, um, Mandavi. I love this this quote. And I think it says it all. With success, there always comes a day of reckoning. I started out with a vision. I put together a partnership, bought land, built a home with my, where my vision could take root and flower. Together with my family and extended family, we created a quality product line, established our image and brand name, educated retailers and consumers, and built a national market of our products. And along the way, we worked hard to raise public consciousness, earn respect and support for our guiding vision. And then came the hard part, success. 
when you're successful at whatever it is you do, the temptation is, ain't I something? Excuse the English, but you understand the point. And the only way that's going to change, the Bible just gives us some great stuff on this. I'm going to give you two very simple things. What are they? Quiet down before God. Be prayerful before him. Don't bother with those who climb the ladder, who elbow their way to the top. And be still and know that I am God. You just get, you know, whatever you can do. Most of us can't take a three-day silent retreat or a five-day silent retreat or even a day. Take 10 minutes. During a break in the action at work or at home or between ball games that you're taking your kids to every five minutes. Somebody told me today their schedule. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me with all the different sports that their kids have. Somewhere in there, find five or 10 minutes and don't turn on the radio and don't read a book and just be quiet. God, help me, help me to know, help me to see my own motives. Help me to see what I'm doing. Help me, not to, help me to get beyond all the glare and all the, all the accolades and all the attaboys that I get or the girls that I get. And just help me to see who I am and where I am and what I'm doing and, and, and my life and, and, and help me to be what I should be. That's what he's saying. Just to be still before God. I'm going to pray and ask God, I'm going to ask Steve to come up because he's going to do a song that, that I think just, just touches us perfectly, hits this right, right, right between the eyes, so to speak. But let me, let me pray and just ask God to, to help us all. God, I do pray that we'd be able to understand and take the time to see these truths and allow you, God, to work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us, God, to have the courage that it takes to come before you and be honest. At the same time, to have the energy to say, God, help me to be that man or that woman, that young person that you want me to be. I pray that. I ask for your help. I thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you for Jesus who gives us that ability to have a relationship with you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.